2: From Easy Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except you don't have to share your snacks. It is the month of August, and our selection this month is Andrew Leland's memoir, The Country of the Blind. It's about Andrew's constantly shifting world as his vision deteriorates, and it explores the mythology that blindness is a binary. It's also about how seeing culture perceives blindness and the history of blindness in the United States. There is not really a spoiler warning for this one, but I do recommend listening to the interview with Andrew that is in the feed. He is very funny and great. So you should go check that out if you haven't yet. Either way, I'm very glad you are listening today. And I am so excited to introduce you to our guests this month. With us, we have M. Leona Godin, the performer and educator who wrote a book in 2021 called Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. Leona, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Greta. Thanks for having me here. So, full disclosure, you are friends with Andrew, right? I am friends
3: with Andrew. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) So, how did you
3: first become friends? Oh, boy. Well, you know, it's a small blind world after Mm. all. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe it was through our mutual friend, Jim Knipfel, otherwise known Mm. as Slackjaw, who was a longtime columnist for the New York Press. And then he wrote a memoir called Slackjaw, which is just really great. So we often refer to him lovingly as like sort of the grandpa of all blind punks. Oh, my God. (laughs) it's beautiful there there is such a thing yes I love it
2: (laughs) so also here is Chloe Cooper Jones a philosophy professor and journalist and the author of the memoir Easy Beauty which came out last year and is about a great many things including what it's like to live with a rare condition that affects her movement Chloe welcome to the show thank you so
4: much for having me
2: so another disclosure I assume you are friends with Andrew since you did his book launch event in Brooklyn is that a fair assumption to make
4: well we became friends because of this book
2: oh beautiful same so I'm so excited to talk to both of you about this book. I'd love to start with an insight that my friend Tracy Thomas had. She hosts a podcast called The Stacks. And I think she would also call herself a fan first and a friend of Andrew. But she, when she had him on her show, she talked about the idea that he's able to write to so many different audiences. And that's something that really resonated with me because personally, I'm coming to this book from the point of view of someone who very early in my life was diagnosed with a degenerative eye disease, but it hasn't really happened yet. It's like very slowly starting. So I think for me, blindness is something that I've always kind of tried to avoid thinking about because it has loomed so heavily for me. And I'm so glad that I decided to jump into this book. And I'm so excited to talk to both of you about it, partly because you two both bring such different experiences and viewpoints, too. And I imagine the book spoke to you both also. I mean, does that track for you, Chloe?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the many, many strengths of it is that it's reaching out to, I think, a very universal human experience. And Mm -hmm. he's on a journey that is both extremely particular, but is always aiming at huge human questions about change and about fears and about the liminal space that we all Mm. have to navigate between who we think we are and who other people think we are. And he navigates those big questions through his own personal journey with RP. But I felt that it was as much a book for me. I also bought it for my mother. I bought it Mm. for many other people that that would not consider themselves disabled. Um, And I think that it does what every great work of nonfiction should maybe aim for. Maybe that seems like an argument that I'm making, but, Mm. which is just thinking about, um, about how many entry points we can give other people into, into our work and like into our own personal, how our personal stories illuminate like a little corner of, the universal experience and I think he does that in in about as good a way as I've seen
2: it done period (laughs) (laughs) I think so too well and he does it with such humor and grace and curiosity which is so exciting yeah So Leona, Chloe mentioned RP, that stands for retinitis pigmentosa, which is of course what Andrew has. It's also the same condition that you have, though yours acted a lot faster. You talk about this in your book too. By the time you were 16, you couldn't read print anymore. And of course that was before like screen readers and smartphones and stuff, which is a really different experience from what Andrew had. And it made me wonder for both of your points of view, how you feel like Andrew approached ableism in this book because I thought he really did a beautiful job, but I, and he talks about this in the book too, where, you know, people who become blind earlier in life often have different attitudes toward potential treatments or whatever. So yeah, I was just really curious about that from your point of view.
3: Yeah, well there's this this wonderful moment pretty early on in the book where he quotes a guy named Will Butler where he yes. says, you know, you gotta you gotta come to terms with this like, you know, going blind narrative, you know. I liked the positive spin on it, which was like, mm. you're becoming blind, right? This <laughs> this 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 little shift in a word can be such a shift in mentality, right? That's beautiful. Becoming kind of Um, suggests that there is a gain, right? Some blind gain Mm. uh, as opposed to just loss. And and I do certainly feel that way. Now, I'm not going to say that life going blind is easy, especially in this ocular centric world of ours. But there's so much to be gained. And I think there's a lot more to be gained with with books like Andrew's because so much of what blind people complain about (laughs) is... sighted people, right? And the attitudes we have to deal with. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, it makes sense,
2: though. It's such a it's such a vision centered world. I mean, I think so many of us think of it as like the primary sense, you know, and it's assuming sightedness.
3: Right. And I I know that people get worried about, you know, oh, well, can't we like assume anything about being human? And it's like, Mm. well, I don't know <laughs> what does it do for us to you know to flatten the human experience and say that this sense is more important than this other sense. I think that mm-hmm. the world has been built in particular ways that has not always been good for us as individuals, or for the world for that for that matter. But um, so I, I think that you know Andrew's book is so important in first of all revealing you know the sight blindness continuum right the very mm-hmm. important point that most of us exist somewhere in this realm between the kind of the construct of perfect sightedness mm-hmm. and and total blindness I mean that's where sort of the majority of human beings exist right and so to recognize that is really important um to recognize that diversity and then also to say look a lot of what we face you know so much of I think the real meat of his book is him dealing with his wife and his kids yes. and his friends and and just dealing doing silly things like going to the bathroom in a bar or whatever. Yep. And that that level of, you know, dare I say, internalized ableism, internalized oculocentrism is a problem that we face as blind people that we don't really have to, right? It doesn't have to do anything with loss of sight. It has to do with perception.
4: know, the thing that immediately struck me about this book was its sheer generosity in the sense that he is able, Andrew Leland is able to incorporate so many layers of the human experience and also his profoundly curious mind. And I think that that's, I mean, content aside, that just feels like thrilling writing. I want everyone to get to experience because I love great literature. I think then, you know, moving more specifically into some of the things that Leona is talking about um, with internalized ableism is, I felt, and Andrew and I spoke about this a bit, his book launch, um, I think one thing that he does so well in this book is he doesn't ask anything of other people that he's not willing to ask of himself in terms Mm. of his approach to explaining the experiences of ableism. So there are moments in the book in which he'll say, you know, this stranger asked me an invasive question, or we were at an event, you know, where we were subjected to a Billy Collins poem that says, get on your knees and thank God for your sight. And, you know, I forgot about that part. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like those moments are in there where the, where the, the sort of um, limitations of the other crash upon, um, upon him or upon his family and, and create this, you know, very painful or very sort of barbed sense of um, living in a world that's just not, it's more than just not suited for your body. It's people's unbelievable limitations mm-hmm. around their imagination of the wholeness mm-hmm. of a disabled life is one yeah. of the forces. I mean, that's, that's a far more reductive and limiting force in my life as a disabled woman than my disability. And that's a very important part, I think, of of this book. He is holding other people accountable for the ways in which the limitations of their imagination of the wholeness of the disabled life limit him in a way that's far greater than RP. I think that's very important. But there are no bad, you know, bad, quote unquote, people in this book. And there are no places in this book in which Andrew Leland's saying, look at what you are all doing to me. He's instead saying like, okay, let's look at what existing in this world does to all of us. And he interrogates his own internalized ableism. And I think maybe most profoundly his, his wife's as well. And, and the Mm -hmm. way that their relationship has to grow that this, this experience is not just happening to him, but it's happening to everybody around him. And I think that everybody that loves him has to do that shift that Leona um, highlighted from going blind, oh, what's this going to do to us, to becoming blind, to inhabiting a new space together. And I think that that is, um, that's just part of what makes this book uh, so incisive and so powerful is that he's willing with such generosity to give us all those layers of that becoming and not just the ones that, are self-protective or that are indictments of Hmm. cruel other people, you know, and, and that's, that's a huge credit to his bravery, skill, talent, um, as a writer and, and just what a gift this book is.
2: It is such a gift. I mean, I think, especially, you know, from my own point of view, really the only blind person I've ever spent much time with was my grandfather and his, I mean, he just didn't leave his house, you know, he just like completely, closed in on himself. And granted this, you know, Leona, to your point was at a time when there wasn't as much assistive tech as there is now. You know, I think he really just decided he didn't want to show any vulnerability or weakness. He just decided to sort of withdraw from the world. And that was kind of, that was what I saw was a real narrowing. And that's always what I've sort of anticipated. And I think this book was so expansive in so many different ways. And that was so exciting.
3: That is such a huge problem. And I can't tell you how many people sort of even stop me on the street, speaking Mm -hmm. of invasive behavior. But, um, you know, a lot of people will say, like, what do I do? You know, my grandfather, grandmother, uncle, father, whatever, is losing their sight. Like, what do I do? They're just not doing any of the things that they love to do. And Mm -hmm. this is where I think that it's a mystery to me why sort of disability pride and, you know, sort of disability is still so you know, not understood as an identity mm. that can be celebrated because we all are going to participate in disability. I mean, if we are lucky to live a certain age, right. to a certain age, we're going to participate in disability. And so, you know, I think that, you know, especially with blindness, because so many older people do lose their vision, mm-hmm. it dovetails with things like ageism, right. Where, where we just have these idealized, uh, desires for like what we want to be which is basically like a 20 year old perfect version mm-hmm. of none of us <laughs> mm-hmm. right and then <laughs> and then you the farther you slip away from that the more traumatic and sort of the more traumatic it seems to get and the more you lose a sense of your self-worth and that chipping away of the self-worth again is something that i i feel like yeah andrew really oh man he he does it in these ways that are just they're so real and vivid and and gets at the heart of this problem that's so much bigger than than blindness, right? That it, it mm. has to do with just like what how we perceive ourselves and what we think that we should be like independent and strong and protective and you know mm-hmm. all these notions about what, for example, from him coming from the point of view of being a, a man and a father and a yes. husband, what we're you know, quote unquote supposed to be like.
4: Yeah, I I wanted to just jump uh, onto that and say that he, absolutely this question of self-worth and and the various ways in which for anybody any living person um the world can chip away at that. I think something that's really deftly handled in this book is that the exploration of of self-worth um is taken on with a lot of nuance and a lot of like, you know, two steps forward or, you know, one step forward, two steps back and you know, and and I think often what can happen with disability narratives and even from disabled writers themselves is you get a sense of pressure from the world or from the publisher, or from an imagined audience that you need to you reduce your story to inspiration for mm-hmm. other able-bodied people. Uh, and that, I think, is another form of being self-reductive or the world being reductive to you or thinking of you as less whole. Mean that when we do see narratives of, of disability in popular culture, which to speak to Leona's point is still way, way, way far mm-hmm. behind um, mm-hmm. any other thing that that we consider um, identity. But when we do see it, we're we're most often exposed to disabled people who are living for the in service to explain to able-bodied people how beautiful their realer life is. Um, and that's done through disabled characters that lack agency, um, that have no romantic or sexual life, that don't aren't allowed to be angry or deeply flawed characters, um, and that often die so that able-bodied people can value their own lives more. Mm. And even you know, in nonfiction books, where there's a lot of pressure, I think, for disabled writers to leave. Some sort of sense of inspiration in the mouths of their readers or something. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think Andrew's book is very inspirational. It absolutely. Is. Is. But, and Yeah, it's funny to hear you say that because it's like, well, he
2: kind of does. Oh, but no, I think this it's a big I think, but.
4: I think it's massively inspirational, but it's earned. It's, yeah. it's, it's inspiration that comes from serious thought, deep internal auditing, uh, and incredible engagement in the world, a sense of questioning, a sense of direction that is not perfectly linear. And that to me sinks me down into the wholeness of a life, Mm -hmm. which is, yeah, that can be very moving and inspirational, but not in a way that is what we quite often end up seeing or or feel pressured into, which is a reductive version of, of what inspiration can be.
2: Mm-hmm. and leona that's something you talk about in your book around Helen Keller. especially it's just like woof
3: yeah let's just let's just put it out there right we want to avoid inspiration porn right yeah, which is sort absolutely. of this uplifting of um of a, a certain individual um that is rising above the the sort of the slop of the rest of the people that have the same disability right and there's this this idea of sort of Inspiring you to appreciate the life you have, right? Like that's the bad kind of inspiration, right? If yeah. I'm walking down the street and people are are like, "Oh, you're so inspiring because you got out of bed and brushed your teeth and are walking <laughs> down the street," right? That's the bad kind of inspiring. That's like inspiration yeah. going, right? Yeah. Um, the good kind of inspiring, which is absolutely what Andrew does. And I, and, and by the way, Chloe, you also do in your wonderful book as well, um, you know, is the the kind that makes you be a better human, right? Not reduces like what you are to just getting out of bed, but says, man, yeah, I'm going to be a curious, engaged human being, or I'm going to be, you know, something that I can aspire to, that has nothing to do with sort of the lowest common denominator that I associate with disabilities, which is so often the case, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Let's listen to a voicemail from a
1: listener. Here is Anne. I wanted to comment on how much I appreciated Andrew's ability in the country of the blind to weave together his own perspective, experience, and often really vulnerable and honest reflections with a thorough explanation and exploration of historical figures in the blind community, current notable figures in the blind community, and points of controversy or debate or disagreement or issues in the blind community. And I feel like having read this book, I will be better equipped to decenter some of my own ableist thinking and be more mindful of my own ableist thinking. And also, I learned that there is a philanthropic arm of Pornhub called Pornhub Cares, as that was casually mentioned in this book.
2: I think that's so delightful because it speaks to like the great spectrum of knowledge that you get from this book, right? Because it's like, yes, like you were, you know, those of us who still have our site are learning how to like decenter our own and, and, and also like who knew about Pornhub? It's just perfect.
4: It's so funny.
2: That's such a great
4: voicemail. And I think it, it, one thing I'm really grateful for about that voicemail is that it's, I think, aiming at, you know, a compliment to the craft of this book. Yes, and, and I know, I mean, I'd be curious, Leona, if you've had this same experience, but, you know, when you write about the the self to a certain extent, I certainly had this experience with Easy Beauty, which thank you, by the way, for your kind words about mm. about my book. I really, that's very meaningful to me. But you know, um, when you write about your experience, a lot of times all you get asked about is the, you know, the personal stuff. And sometimes your identity as a writer and a serious, mm-hmm. you know, thinker of craft um, gets kind of forgotten in, in the conversation. And I think that this book, one of the many, I mean, I just feel like I have endless sort of appreciation for it. But I maybe above nearly all else is the unbelievable, unbelievably skillful way in which he weaves together a lot of deeply, deeply reported material. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's so seamless. You just, you know, I was just looking back at a couple chapters um, in preparation for for speaking to you today. And I was just looking you know, at this chapter of him going to an eye doctor. And suddenly, oh. I realized I've read, you know, I've read like three pages about the history of, of eye charts, but it it's so <laughs> enjoyable. And it's so seamlessly woven into the present moment of his experience and the personal and the humorous that, you know, it's like he just gives us this information and in, in I don't, it's just such artful ways. And I think that that is much, much harder than, than people realize it. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm envious. I've, I'm teaching this book in my class at Columbia oh, cool. next term. Like, I can't wait to talk to students about just the skillfulness on the sentence level, on the paragraph level, structural, structural level. Like, it's just a real marvel of like literary achievement.
2: I think you're right. I think too. And, and I think you kind of spoke to this already also, Chloe is the idea that he is holding ableism accountable while not being really aggressive or, you know, like, I think there's like an invitation to people to consider their own roles in this without, without shaming them or berating them, which I think is also very generous.
4: Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about this a bit at his book launch, like one has to ask themselves eventually, um, what is my real goal in addressing some of these topics? And I think, mm. certainly for me, and, and I think for, you know, I don't want to speak for him, but this this is something he talked about is like, our goal is to really move the needle, <laughs> like, in mm. terms of like, getting real equality, like, getting people to, to do that, you know, and auditing of self to get people to check internal ableism. And I think the you know, an important tool for for moving that needle is recognizing that for all of us, um, we are never going to get it perfectly right. I mean, questions mm-hmm. of accessibility, questions of inclusivity, cl- questions of you know how you approach per- very personal topics about the body. I mean, mm-hmm. those are so nuanced and they're so um, particular that it's, so, it's an unbelievable amount of pressure for any living person to go, gosh, I better, if I don't get this right, I'm the bad guy. Yeah. It's like, no, no, yeah. no, no. no. Yeah. Like, that's not the right mindset. In my opinion, that is not the right mindset. The right yeah. mindset is, can you be open? Can you be curious? Do you have room to non-defensively listen? Um, and are you willing, are you committed to... To growth in this particular area. Mm. Those are questions I have to ask myself all the time. And I do think that's actually what aims at moving the needle for people and, and that voicemail, I think really speaks to that.
2: Mm. Well, and Leona, I love the you're phrasing earlier, the idea of participating in disability. I think that's really
3: interesting and and so true. Yeah, I mean, I think that that people talk about empathy so often, but I really think that humility is maybe the better way to go about mm. things, right, that you actually can't know what another person is experiencing, you know, mm. I and mean, you can, you can learn about it, you know, through reading Like wonderful books like this, but but in the end, you just have to recognize the fact that you're not going to get it. And if you simply say, "Oh, I'm going to close my eyes and try and pretend what it's like to be a blind person," Mm -hmm. yikes, that's scary. (laughs) Okay, never. (laughs) That reaffirms all of my ideas about how horrifying blindness is, right? Like, I I just don't think that. um, Yeah, I think that that idea of, of realizing that you know, we need to be humble in the face of like, what we don't understand in the face that like times are changing and, and our concepts of identity are changing and language, right? I mean, we haven't even Mm. talked about language, but Mm. I mean, language as well, you know, is, is constantly shifting around us and that that's okay not to be scared by it, but to to embrace that.
2: Yeah. Well, I think vulnerability too in tandem with that humility. I mean, I, I think Andrew shows so much vulnerability in this Mm -hmm. book. I think even in the example of like, I found really resonant the, the idea that he always felt like he's a couple steps behind his vision changes. And then to Uh realize that like, of course his wife isn't along with him, like she's a couple steps behind him because she can't read his mind. She's not seeing through his eyes. If he doesn't communicate to her that like the thing on the stairs is in the way, or, you know, the shampoo on the bathtub ledge or whatever, then like it, it's understandable that she wouldn't think of that. But you know, like that's part of those conversations is to be able to say, Hey, this is actually a thing now. I know it wasn't before, but it is now. And nobody has to take that personally, but let's figure out how we can address it together. I thought it was also just a really beautiful uh, representation of of an evolving relationship as people are dealing with these things.
4: I agree, and I think that's actually something anybody in a long term relationship can recognize. Yes, <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> that's. I mean, that's what I mean about. As I was saying earlier, you know how Andrew always finds this way of aiming at the universal. I mean, mm-hmm. so many of the things that he's talking about are just basic problems and in human communication or sharing lives, you know, sharing a life with another person or, you know, when you choose to share a life with another person, how much of their body becomes your body, you know, like Mm. to think about or, or what it really means to, to think with, you know, this sort of shared life in mind. And Mm. I think that, I think that's part of why this book can resonate
3: with so many people. I think especially um, when it comes to the relationship with his son, I think it speaks not only to him being a lovely father and then having a wonderful (laughs) relationship, but also the fact that kids don't have the same perceptions around disability that adults do, right? And Mm -hmm. so this is kind of a really um, active way of showing that ableism and oculocentrism are learned behaviors, you know? And when you have a kid that's growing up with a dad with bad papers. I love it so much. <laughs> um, you know, it's just going to be part of your life. And I know so many, you know, fathers and mothers that are blind that have that same experience, right? That that um the kids are just like, well, that's my dad, you know, that's my mm-hmm. mom or whatever. And I, I do think that speaking of representation, we just basically don't have that represented in the media, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. like no such thing as just sort of a normal person that is blind, right, that has a family and a job and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of living their life. So it's also just useful to get the word out about that as well, I think.
4: Yeah, I think that's also um, a really, yeah, really important part of the book. And I know for me, you know, the book that I was able to write really didn't, it didn't, it could not have existed without my son, because my son was, Mm -hmm. I recognized suddenly that that I had an experience of someone loving me before ideas. Mm. And that Mm -hmm. was a completely transformative experience. I mean, obviously my mother loves me so much, but she had ideas (laughs) before I was born, you know, she had ideas of who her child would be, the life that she would have with her, the body that her child might have, what disability was, you know, um, my friends or, or partners or anybody like have ideas before loving me, but my son was Mm -hmm. the first person who didn't. And that, that completely shifts, um, I think your relationship to the self. And so I felt a real kinship in in those sections when when Andrew was talking about, about his son. And um, I think it's just so important that you brought that up, Leona.
2: Oh my gosh, Chloe, the way you phrase that's so beautiful. Okay. You hit my heart. <laughs> I know, I got chills, so I got chills. <laughs> yes. <laughs> More with Chloe Cooper-Jones and Leona Godin in just a minute.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen. Nguyen
2: All right, let's listen to another voicemail. Here is Emily. I think what struck me most about this book was his exploration of ambiguity. I really loved how he was
3: just straddling this line of, you know, the world of the blind and the world of the sighted. And I guess it's about identity too. He didn't quite feel like he fit into either.
2: Um, All these in-betweens in our lives, I think we're so... um, Obviously, we're so polarized right now, it's so easy to just say like, are you X or are you Y? Um, But really, we all know that the life is um, lived in the gray uh, and lived in that in between. So really, really enjoyed that. I love that too. I think that speaks to Chloe used the phrase liminal spaces earlier and just that idea also of, of humility and vulnerability and, and meeting people where they are and change and being curious, you know, I think it's really resonant with a lot of this stuff we've already talked about.
4: Yeah. I mean, that's something that Andrew and I've talked about so much is all the liminality or ambiguity or gray space as the, as the, um, caller speaks to, uh, it, it's such an important part of this book. And one thing that he and I kind of came to in a in an interview that we did together for the Millions was mm. this sort of internal liminal space and and how it collides with an external liminal space and what what I mean by that more specifically is he was talking about how there are all these ways that you could put you know um, any you know a list of identity markers on onto him being male being you know, Mm -hmm. having RP, being white, being, you know, Jewish, being whatever it is, a whole list of things. And we can do that for all of, all of, you know, we can all make that list. And he said, Mm -hmm. but there are moments in which, of course, when I'm like making a sandwich or something where none of those factors seem to, or eating a sandwich or whatever, taking a bath, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be, where it's like, (laughs) I'm not really thinking about my maleness. I'm not really thinking about RP, you know, I'm not, it's not, it's not as heavily present, Internally for me. And then there are other moments like in the making of that sandwich when he loses the knife on the cutting board or something, um, he's cutting a radish and loses the knife on the, where suddenly that identity or questions around that or the experience kind of pop up. So he was saying, you know, one could imagine themselves on this constantly moving along an internal spectrum of these identity markers being very present and being less present. But the Mm -hmm. interesting thing is when that collides with other people's um, shifting awareness of you, and the sort of ways in which your interior processing of what the self is, and that exterior um, reflection, or judgment, or presumption about yourself is. And that's Mm -hmm. where a lot of, you know, it's in the sort of those, you know, the liminal space between those two poles that the most um, sort of challenging aspects of this book also sort of live in in the gray space between those two spaces.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think a really strong example of that specifically in this book is you know, that moment, is it at a restaurant where he takes out his cane and his wife is like, do you really need that? Yeah, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that idea of all of a sudden, you know, it's one thing if you're a guy who's kind of squinting around and like having a hard time finding the bathroom in the dark, it's another if you're a guy with a cane, like those are perceived externally very differently.
4: Absolutely. And suddenly, yeah, his wife doesn't want him perceived that way or perceives that cane as, as somehow a symbol of possibly weakness rather than, a uh, symbol of agency. Which Good for is, you for getting
2: around. Yeah, yeah
4: you know. So that's a, an excellent example and a very fraught scene. One that I'm so grateful that he left in because,
1: yeah, you know, maybe same. some
4: people don't want to admit that about their about their relationship, but I think it's um, it's such an important moment.
3: Yeah, and and I mean that's the that's the quintessential example with you know going blind diseases. I mean, it's basically part of every one of our story is picking up the stigmatic white cane mm. is like the hardest thing that any of us have to do like l- the fear of looking blind is mm-hmm. scarier than the actual blindness and and I think that pretty much all of us have had the experience of somebody either close or not close or on a date or whatever being like oh no 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 no, no. you do not need that cane right and and then saying to ourselves at some moment like yes, I do. Right. That this, this symbol of so-called helplessness is actually a super helpful tool. Mm.
2: I also really loved how little this book talked about possible treatments, which I found really interesting, especially as a person who also, you know, has a genetic eye disease that ostensibly could be cured by CRISPR any day now. So they say, right. But to think about like, the the fact that there's very little emotional investment in that possibility that this is really about engaging actively. And I just really appreciated that about it. I thought it was a really, I was really grateful for that approach. I think, did that strike you too, Leona, or did you not really think about that aspect of it?
3: Well, it's something that I, I think that it is kind of brought in the disability community to mm, think sure. in terms of cure, because it does it just presupposes that your life is life is better crap, and and yeah. life is better without a disability. And so, it is a it's a it's a tough thing to 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 move around because I I think you said it so beautifully and and so honestly in in your conversation with him, mm. right? And um, Greta, that if I had the choice, I would have you know full eyesight, right? If I if I had that choice in my life, and um, I think that he does. Uh, a good job of suggesting that a cure is not something that is possible, but it's also not a really useful thing to think about. And, yeah. I, and I think that that's how it's always been for me, where I've just, I've never really thought about a cure. And honestly, mm. I've done enough research into it that says that not so much in, in the case of being like low vision, but certainly for people that are totally blind it's gone, and suddenly yeah. are given sight, this does not end well, like most mm, of the time, mm. it does not end well at all. You know, you, you come to do a certain, you, you, your brain, your identity, everything gets mm. used to doing things in a certain way. And it can be extremely like as devastating going the other way around, which is, I think, counterintuitive to a lot of people. Now, of course, that's not the same as, you know, being in the throes of of losing your vision, and feeling like, man, everything that I used to do so easily is now really hard. Yeah, I think that's a harder conversation about about cure. But I think that yes, not talking about it is probably a good way of going about it because then that would be a very different kind of realm of curiosity, which I think can be interesting, right? To, to pursue that idea of cure. I did talk about that just a teeny bit in, in my book and, and what that means. And I, I think it would have been another, yeah, another trail to, to follow and to have other kinds of honest conversations. Mm. So we do a
2: rating system with our books every month and it's like always, I mean, it's completely arbitrary, but we thought with this one, it would be fun to do peepers. Peeper. Peepers. Okay. peepers. okay. So between one and a hundred peepers, how many peepers would you give this book? Chloe, let's start with you. I'm giving it I'm giving it
4: 500 peepers. Yes, I love it. I love
2: it. I think that's <laughs> extremely
3: accurate and beautiful and I love it very much. What do you think, Leona? Are you with us? I'll take that. I'll take those peepers and double it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Amazing. I'm just Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I am just going to um, you know, I, I agree with that 500 or, you know, yeah. if the upper limit the is higher, I I'm, I'm, I'm giving the max. Yeah. 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 yeah, I love that.
2: So, um, the other thing that I asked y'all to bring some ideas for was books that are in conversation with this one. And that could be tone, topic, uh, genre, really whatever. We try to be as expansive as possible with that. Um, I would love to recommend both of your books as being part of the conversation because I think they're both really lovely. and, And as you both kind of spoke to also the idea of kind of wrestling with with disability and how and whether it defines you in terms of your own memoirs is just a really beautiful and fascinating concept. So I highly recommend their plant eyes and easy beauty. Um, but Leona, thank you. As you were thinking about other books that really resonate with this one, do any specific titles come to mind?
3: So I absolutely recommend a book by Deafblind poet, and essayist John Lee Clark. It's called Touch the Future. I believe it's coming out in October. Also, he has a book of poetry that just came out called How to Communicate. Mm. Both Andrew and I are big devotees of, of John Clark he has some just amazing ideas about inclusion and the problem with inclusion being always like a one-way street right like let the disabled people in and mm. he has really helped to shift my mentality about the idea that um well if if the sighted hearing world wants to come and check out what we're doing over here in the deaf blind world we will by all means let let them in, but I'm not going to worry about like trying to fit into the mainstream. Mm, things like that. It's really radical I- ideas. So highly, highly good.
2: Awesome. That sounds great. I love those recommendations. Um, Chloe, what do you think? Yeah,
4: there's so many great books that, that come to mind. I think one, specifically, is Disability Aesthetics by Tobin Siebers, um, mm. which is a book that looks at the history of art. And I think that Andrew really brings in a lot of, of thinking about art as well as mm-hmm. as other types of histories. But I think the kinship that I feel is one of the most powerful things for me in this book is the way that Andrew is able to sort of recontextualize what it means to use Adaptive technologies or assistive technologies, mm. and you know, and to to make a great sort of argument about how every single one of us is using some form of assistive technology, like the sneakers I wear to go across gravel. Um, you know, I, none of our bodies are perfectly suited for this harsh, difficult world. So, you know, thinking about assistive technologies as a spectrum rather than sort of some niche thing for an other type of person. I think that Tobin Siebers does a version of this in looking at art and making an argument about the history of art, which is not that it should make more room for disabled people, but rather that disabled people and disabled bodies and disabled forms and ideas are already in the history of art. You just don't know how to see them or look for them or understand them.
2: Well. Chloe, Leona, thank you both so very much for coming on and sharing your experiences with me. I think this was a really lovely conversation. I'm really grateful for it.
3: Thank you so much
2: for inviting me. Thank you for having us. that's it for this month. Thank you as always for reading and listening along. I really appreciate your insights about this one and I hope you enjoyed that conversation. You probably already know it, but just in case you missed it, our September book club pick is Angie Kim's excellent new novel, Happiness Falls. That spoiler free author interview is dropping in the feed a week from today. So be sure to check that out. And then of course, read the book and tell us what you think of it. You can record yourself on your smartphone and then email that file to nerdappodcast at gmail.com. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman, and our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak at WBEZ in Chicago, and we're part of the NPR network. We will see you on Friday.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.